You're listening to a message delivered at First Family Church from the series, The Kings and the King, Expectation in the Books of the Kings. For more information and messages, visit our website at firstfamily.church. Well, as I said, this is week 53 of our current series. It's also the final week. And so you heard us say week 53. That's actually just a little more than a year's worth of preaching, by the way. That's not that long. But we've done it over two years. So we've been in this study called The Kings and the King for about two years. Today we wrap all of that up. And so I'm really excited about kind of bringing a lot of conclusion, some summation to what we've looked at over six books, the Samuels through the Chronicles. To do that, we're going to look at the last two chapters primarily. Go ahead and turn there, 2 Kings 24 and 25. We'll look the last half of 23 a little bit, but mainly 24 and 25. And I want to kind of examine the concluding chapters through three windows, all right? So we're answering this question today, why did this happen? And we're going to answer that question through three windows. Now, this is not going to be a hard task. You do this every day of your life because as you're in your home, there are different windows through which you look and you see the same thing. So in our home, um, we have the kitchen window, which looks into the backyard. There's a swing set there for the grandkids. And then we have a dining room window, and then you have a bedroom window. So three windows, but what do they look at? The same scene in the backyard, different vantage points, different perspectives, but really it's the same scene. It's the backyard, the swing set, and what's going on out there, right? Same thing in the, in the front. You have a, a window in the living room, You one in the bedroom. There's one on the left of that. So, so in your house, you have the same thing. You have probably something you're looking at, but you can look at the same thing through a different window. Today, we're going to see the same event through three different windows. It's the window of the timeline. By this, I simply mean the historical timeline. I'll give you a simple way to kind of understand the last 23 years, which comprises the fall of the southern kingdom. They're going to see this through the window of the text. How does the Bible actually describe this final event? And then we're going to look through the window of what I call spiritual truths, or maybe we'll call this principles, observations that we learn from this. So if you're with me, nod your head. Kind of with me? Three windows. We're looking through this. Timeline, text, and truth. All right? Let's begin by understanding, first of all, the timeline. I'm going to hold off on reading the scriptures because I want to kind of give you the historical background first. Okay? If you're still turned to what? 2 Kings 24 and 25. Put a finger there. You'll also want to put a finger in 2 Chronicles 36 and Jeremiah 52. So if you've got multiple fingers in use today, go ahead and find those three scriptures. We'll get to them in a minute because they will support the timeline we're going to show you. To kind of get a sense of what's happening in these two chapters, I want you to kind of say this countdown with me. Ready? Four, three, two, one. This is the best way to remember the last two chapters or the last 23 years of the southern kingdom's history. There were four kings, three countries, two sieges that led to one fall. You with me? And what happens in these two chapters, one commentator says, is really the author kind of like does the old pull the band-aid off quick kind of trick. You know, if you've got a a sore you're working with and you want to get the band-aid off, very few guys, especially when there's hair involved, okay, you know, (laughs) They're not going to take their time and just peel it slowly. What are they going to do? They're going to rip it off. So in these four chapters, I mean these two chapters, he really covers 23 years, and he just kind of mentions them quickly, talks about these countries and how they're 
financially causing Judah to be in subjection, how they're physically sieging it. So it does it pretty quickly. And the best way to remember it is just through a 4 3 2 1 countdown. Here's a picture of my notes. Now, I know that doesn't mean much to you guys. You might want to get a snapshot. I like different colors, and I kind of like to put things in charts and diagrams. This is how I remember it. There were four kings, Jehoiahaz, Eliakim, Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah. Two of them had other names, by the way. Eliakim was also known as Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah was also known as Mathatiah. I didn't say that right, but it's in the text. You'll forgive me on not saying names right. I'm sure you will. Because you can't either, so we're good, right? <laughs> These are the four kings. None were good. They continued to do evil. The first two kings, they dealt with Egypt and mainly a financial type of siege. Egypt was laying tribute on them. They were to pay taxes. And I find this quite ironic that it's Egypt, the very first nation from whom God released his people. Remember that? The Exodus? Now they're back in the picture giving Israel problems. And the kings aren't leading well. They're not courageous or, or humble or, or righteous. And so the first two kings deal with Egypt, but Babylon becomes very powerful, and Egypt backs away. And so in the last two kings, they deal with Babylon, and that's mainly a physical siege where they move in, starve the southern kingdom. It eventually lands in 586 with the fall of Jerusalem. So it's a 23-year gap between when Jehoiahaz started and then Zedekiah ends it. It's a dismal day. There's no way around it. They're following the pattern of the northern kingdom. They disobeyed God. God warned through the prophets. They didn't listen. And so now God is bringing his discipline to its culmination by letting foreign nations come in, plunder their city, and lead off their citizens to captivity. So I just would remind you, you can take a picture of this. Here's how it looks in a typed format. I think the next slide shows us that. That might be a little better for those of you who like things more organized and neat. It's a little hard to read, a little small, but um, I would just encourage you, however you look at it, the countdown helps me a ton. Say it with me. Ready? Four, three, two, one. Four kings, three countries in play, two sieges that led to one fall. That's 23 years that comprise... 2 Kings 24 and 25, okay? That's the, time, that's the window of what the historical timeline. How does the Bible describe not just this whole period, but especially the final fall of Jerusalem? How is this dismal situation pictured textually? Let's look through that window for a moment. And here's where I want to kind of read the text for us. And let's get a picture of how God describes it. Let's begin in 2 Kings 24. Let's begin in verse 1. You'll get a little bit of background here, but you'll see that beginning in verse uh, 3, it'll make um, kind of a culminating sense. 24.1 of 2 Kings, In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. But then he turned and rebelled against him. And the Lord sent against him bands of the Chaldeans, bands of the Syrians, and bands of the Moabites, and bands of the Ammonites, and he sent them against Judah to destroy it, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servants, the prophets. Look at verse 3. Surely this came upon Judah at the command of the Lord to remove them out of his sight. 
for the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done, and also for the innocent blood that he had shed. For he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord would not pardon. The sins had reached their climax. Their disobedience had reached the tipping point. So God was no longer now offering repentance in the middle of their sin. He was saying, I'm going to discipline. That's the only way you're going to listen. And so he has begun his discipline of Judah. Look at verse 20. Kind of repeats God's commitment to bring his people to their knees one way or the other. For because of the anger of the Lord, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out from his presence. Look at chapter 25 now. Let's read verses 8 through about 11. Here's the actual description of that day in 586 when the one fall took place. Remember the 4321? Here's kind of the culminating moment. 25.8, in the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, that was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were the, with the captain of the guard, they broke down the walls around Jerusalem. And the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon, together with the rest of the multitude, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile. Turn to the right a few pages, 2 Chronicles chapter 36. Here's a little lengthier portion, but it says the same thing. Here's how this writer described this day in Jerusalem, 586. Here's how the text would give us a picture of the historical timeline event. Verse 15 of 2 Chronicles 36, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them, speaking of Judah, and I believe Israel, the northern kingdom, he sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place, Jerusalem namely. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. Verse 17, what's the first word? Therefore. So here is what he's doing that is without remedy. He brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary. They had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and of his princes. All these he brought to Babylon. They burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed its, all its precious vessels. He took into exile into Babylon those who had escaped from the sword. They became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Now, as you think about this text, remember, this is when Daniel uh, and his three friends were hauled away to Babylon. You heard the story of Daniel in the lion's den, remember that? And the three uh, Jewish guys in the fiery furnace, recall that? That all happened after this event. They were hauled away in this crowd. 
in those 70 years. Now, when you see the situation here about the 70 years, understand God's explaining here how he determined the length of his discipline. We know how he was going to discipline them. He was going to allow foreign nations to come in, plunder them, pillage them, and take them off into captivity. But why 70 years? Because for about 490 years, listen very carefully, Israel had neglected and abandoned the worship practices that they were given in the Mosaic law. In fact, the kings who were, who were the bright spots in their history were the ones who would go back to the law of Moses and see how God intended them to relate and would obey it. But for the most part, the kings just abandoned God's law given to Moses as to how they were to relate to God. Part of that was that every seventh year, the land was to rest. No farming, no tilling. This was not only to help the land. It wasn't just environmental. It was also spiritual. They were to, in this way, increase their trust and faith in God. They were to save during the six years, and they were to trust that God would provide along with how he enabled them to work in this seventh year. So it had multiple reasons, but they abandoned that. And they didn't worship God in this way. So God was reclaiming 70 of these seventh years. If you're following that, nod your head. Make sense? So if you were to divide 490, uh, you'd see that there are 70 sevenths in there. And so God said, you've refused to worship me in the way that I asked you to and commanded you to. So I'm done asking. I'm done through the prophets uh, appealing to you. I'm now going to get your attention through a discipline. So he sends them off into captivity and he reclaims these 70 Sabbaths. And you'll check history, for the most part, the land was desolate. There were a few folks who still remained there and they would handle things agriculturally a little bit, but no one lived there much. It wasn't used for God's purposes. And God was reclaiming every one of these years that, that his people actually ignored in the way to worship him. Notice what Jeremiah says about this. Can you flip to the right one more time? Here's the, rep, the passage referenced, one of them I should say referenced in the Chronicles. Look at Jeremiah 52 verses, oh, let's say 12 and 13. Jeremiah here is in the exact same time frame. He calls it the 10th day. It's this period of the 5th month, the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar. They're in the same region of time. So it's a very accurate depiction of what happened in time and space history, by the way. There's names, there's places, there's, there's dates. This Nebuzaradan, captain of the bodyguard who served the king of Babylon, he entered Jerusalem and he burned the house of the Lord, the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down. So do you see how the text describes these events? It's, it's not a pretty picture. So the text tells us why the sins of Manasseh, their refusal to obey God's laws in, in regards to human life and relationships as well as obeying God's laws in regards to worship. And we see the reason for the length. This is what the text is telling us about God's discipline upon his people. Now I want to pause here and help you kind of get your hands around this for a minute. When you read this, you, you may think it seems so... Um, it seems uh, really intense, like God was done with them. He was going to get their attention one way or the other. You're right. On a national level, that's what he was doing to uh, return the remnant, to save his people, to make sure that 
that God did gain the attention of, of the remnant. But this is not a whole lot different. And it's, it's on a greater scale, but it's not a whole lot different in principle than how we treat and discipline our kids. There are times that you appeal to your children, you work with them, and you hope that they listen while you're appealing to them. And there are times when they don't, you reach a point in which you say, you know what, regardless now of whether you listen or not, the discipline's on the way. If you've done that as a parent, nod your head. I hear you well. Amen. Praise God. I recall as a kid experiencing this. I had deceived my parents for about two or three months on an issue. I was in junior high, and they're watching this, I'm sure. Uh, for them, it'll be Sunday night, but they're watching this, and they're probably chuckling right now. But there was about a two or three-month period. I had deceived them in an issue, and they discovered it. I was repentant, but there was discipline that was going to happen regardless. Does that make sense? There were consequences. They wanted to get my attention and to spare me from future sin, to bring me back, so to speak, to like, hey, think correctly about this. Here's a way we'll help you think correctly about it. And I had to undergo some discipline. Call it chastisement, correction. We've done this, Julie, with our kids. In fact, this week I was thinking of two situations, especially, um, that were pretty intense. And I won't go into details or names, except to say that in one of them, um, there wasn't a lot of joy in the moment, but we held to our guns. And even just a few years ago, this child came and just said, I'm so glad that you saw what I didn't see. This is a very humble comment. Another one of our children, um, we were in several months of just enacting the discipline. And at a certain point, uh, this child said, hey, I really feel like I'm responding well. What are you thinking? Can we kind of call it good? Can I have some trust back? And we both realized, you know what? They're right. And we just had a great moment of kind of reinstituting, like, let's get back to where it needs to be. And so we, we've had moments where, where you realize the only way you're going to get them to hear is to actually carry through on the discipline. Does that make sense, guys? So when you read this and you think, I, it just seems so yesteryear. It seems so hard to relate. I, I want to ask you, I know it's on a grander scale, but just think about what parents have to do with their children. If you're in here as an elementary kid, as a teenager, you can relate to this. There are times you're like, man, what is going on? My mom and dad are pressing in hard. Yeah, they're trying to draw you back, teach you, correct you, so that you think better next time you're tempted. If you're an elementary kid, look at me. Is that making sense? If you're a teenager, you, you hearing me? Your parents love you. They care about you. And often the way they show that and help you think rightly about situations where you've not done right is through discipline. And they do that because you belong to them. Notice God did not discipline the foreign nations, did he? Did he use them? Was he in control of them? Yes, but he was doing that to bring his people back to him. Your parents love you in the same way. They're, they're, they want to help you think correctly and to live correctly and to relate to them correctly. So they're going to discipline you, chastise you, and at times they're going to bring the weight of their position to bear upon your life for good reason. Okay? That's what's happening here. God is bringing his people around, bringing them back. And he's doing this by carrying through on his discipline that he promised he would do if they disobeyed. There's the window of the timeline in the text. What do we learn from all of this? How can we look through the window of truth, spiritual lessons, principles, 
and, and kind of make sense of not just this week, but maybe 52 other weeks. Well, to help with this, I'm going to ask Pastor Chris and Pastor Travis to join me. Why don't you guys flank me, if you would, grab a mic and just uh, let's grab a stool. I thought we might have a little bit of a roundtable discussion uh, about the three, I'll call them umbrella sins that are represented not only in this text that kind of tell us why this happened. That's the question we're asking today, why did this happen? But it also gives us some insight into the, the, the entire six books, all 53 weeks combined, okay? Here's one thing we've seen, not only this week, but in the past several weeks, that God brought this discipline because of these three major categories of disobedience. First of all, there was no exclusive worship of Yahweh. And this really began with Solomon, all right? There were seeds with Saul. I won't go into that now. But it really began with Solomon as he began to build idolatrous places for the wives that he married in forming alliances with other nations. And it just kind of um, digressed from there until the kingdom split. And then there's just multiple worship practices and places. The second category would be no covenant commitment to the community. In other words, we see a real straying from God's covenant as revealed to Moses on Mount Sinai, what we would call the law. They just didn't follow it. And so this led to the third category, no cultural distinction from other nations. They became like every other nation. And what's so ironic is their actual job, if you read back in Leviticus and in the early stages of the covenant, was to be a light to the nations. So again, we say something here. Our, let me say it in Israel's case. Israel's distinction, or I should say attraction, was actually in their distinction. And so they lost this attraction. They lost this ability to shine as a light because they became like every other nation. So these are all tied together in some ways, and yet they're distinct. But if you were to ask, why did this happen? You look at these two chapters and the timeline, the text as well. You'll find that these, the, these three truths, these umbrella sins, continue to kind of press to the forefront. They kind of keep surfacing and emerging. So I want to ask Chris and Travis to kind of chat with me about these things applicationally, all right? They may bring in some other passages. They may bring in some other points from previous weeks. But let's talk as pastors to these sheep. Um, what do these things tell us about today? So let's think about this first one. No exclusive worship of Yahweh. How does, uh, I'll start with you, Travis. Just kind of help me and help us think through how do we process that principle today? Like, does God expect us to worship him alone? And how would that look in 2018, 2019? Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, I think it's a little bit more tricky because we don't set up high places. We don't um, worship like uh, the kings were doing around this time period. Uh, but the, the point the law is still the same, right? The first um, commandment that was given to Moses was you should have no other God uh, before me. That's exclusivity, right? Only worship God, only serve him alone. Jesus summarized that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. So that's the command that's given to us regardless of time period. That's true for us today. That's the same for us. And the word that I want to maybe summarize this is, is satisfied. God should be everything to us. He should satisfy us. 
maybe to use a Christmas analogy, there should be no more room in the inn. Our hearts should be full. Our hearts should be satisfied with God. We should love him alone. Now, um, how we sin, how we break this law, uh, I think looks tricky. It looks um, a little bit different. That's why I think it's a lot of times it's hard to diagnose. But we talk about idolatry a lot of times, those things that we love more than God. And I think, man, that is something that we've got to continue to wrestle with and diagnose and surround ourselves with people who know us that can point out those idols in our life. Like, hey, you really love that thing. Um, I think I hear you talking about that more than I hear you talking about God. I think I see you running to that when you have some free time. That That's hard to diagnose in my own life. And it's my spouse, it's my small group, it's my friends who are able to really help me say, uh, Travis, I think you're worshiping something else. And that's what the necessary of the church is to come around you and surround you and to help you see the idols that you've, you've set up in your own life. And so I think um, a good diagnosis, a diagnosis question would be, what do I love? What do I run to? How do I spend my time? Mm. When I get a little bit of me time, what do I, what do I fill that with? That's a good diagnostic question. Here's a tool that our family's used. I'll just kind of share it with you. It's something we've shared, and I think I've shared it with you a little bit. But you can pretty much identify your idols by your repeated choices. So you hearing me okay? If you ever wonder, like, what is it that I love? Like you're saying, what is it that I think satisfies? Because you find out what your idols are in your repeated choices. You won't know until you have to make a choice, but once you have to choose between God and something else, and you consistently seem to choose the other thing, look in the mirror and have the hard conversation. Your repeated choices will reveal, like you said, your idols. So Chris, kind of apply this part for us. I don't know, this may be a hard question. It's not meant to be, but like they tore down the high places. They kind of went after their idols. How does that look in 2018 and 19? What do we do with things that we think are rivaling God, how do we go after him? One of the things that came to my mind when I was kind of thinking about this particular question was the word of authentic worship. Um, if we're going to be authentically worshiping God, then we will worship with all of our heart, soul, and mind. And that's something that as we, um, is really birthed out of our devotion to God and to his word. And so here's the example that came to my mind. It's very current. So how many of you saw the funeral of President Bush or, or got to see enough of it? Very gospel-centered, very, you know, if you watched that funeral, you would come away with this impression that, that the name of Jesus Christ was lifted high and that the gospel was clearly proclaimed. And it seemed really odd in a national service like that. But here's the thing, and this is no reflection upon President Bush and his faith. This is a reflection on us. President Bush was a lifelong Episcopal. And so the, the service that we saw was right out of the, the common book of prayer, which is a very gospel-centered, Christ-honoring um, piece of, of scriptural literature. I mean, it's something that the Church of England has used and Episcopals for centuries. And so here we saw in this example, this case where everyone is lifting up the name of Jesus, but their hearts were not there. I mean, 
you know that in that room of people, there were a few believers, but a lot of those people, the, the people that were at that funeral had no idea what, they were just reading words, right, they, that was in front of them. They would just, they were given this liturgy and they would read it. And you see, I think that's what we have to be careful about is, is when we talk about exclusive worship of Yahweh, we're talking about an authentic heart-led worship, not just reading liturgy or kind of going through the rote of, of worship, but God is looking for, for people whose heart, isn't that something we've seen throughout our study of the kings? They, a king would be highlighted and he'd be compared to David. And the thing that would compare him was that his heart was with God. Mm-hmm. He was pointing to God. He wasn't doing things out of selfish motive. And so that seemed to me, as, as I was thinking about that, that authenticity is really the, the key to exclusive worship. That it's, it's a true love relationship and not just a, a rote relationship that I follow because I'm following some script. Yeah. External conformity is usually a sign that you're not going in a good direction, right? You just feel like the pressure to conform on the outside is really high. Like, be careful. But inner transformation is a good sign. That's a good point. So if you, if you feel like someone has something to squeeze on you, like I, I got to do this or do that to they think something of me, that's probably coming from a bad place. Attack that through authenticity. Romans 12, 1 and 2 talk about those two contrasts. Um, let me ask them one more question about this first one, and this will be a little dicey, a little tricky. I know the, 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 that meeting together isn't the only way to worship. We would all agree to that. Um, but God has asked the church to come together. Chris, I'm going to start with you on this one. Um, generation or two ago, that was considered norm, if, faithful, if we did that, what, three or four times a week probably? Or maybe I should say two or three times a week. Maybe you met, you are considered faithful. Maybe four or five times a month. But the new surveys, the new trends seem to say that we consider ourselves faithful to worship God as a collective body if we're meeting, what, how many times a month, and kind of talk about this, this downward trend that we're seeing in regards to the collective gathering of God's people to worship. I think as we, as we look at our, our nation, we realize that we are in a time of, of transformation from, from what was to what is becoming. And I, I think every generation probably sees this to some degree, but in our case, um, you know, if you were born, let's say, before 1970, okay, you probably grew up in a, in a country that was much more um, Christian on the outward appearance, at least, and it wasn't hostile to it. If you're growing up today, if you were born in, say, 1995 and after, you've, you've grown up in a country that is, is openly hostile to Christianity in many ways. I mean, how many times do you see in the newspaper, well, there's newspapers for those of you that are those used to be these things you would like open up and read, but how many times do you see on your Facebook feed, you know, that some school district is being challenged because they, they've got a Christmas program and it's being called a Christmas program and that's, you know, going to pervert the whole generation. And so there's a lot of hostility and what, what we're seeing today is that we are, we are transitioning um, from a country that has a, a very clear Christian foundation and that was founded upon Christian principles to one that has a much more secular foundation. And so for those of you that are growing up, you're going to have to reach, and I'm, I'm looking to those of you that are under 20. Remember Josiah? 
I mean, he found the book of the law, and what did he do? He started reading it, and he's like, oh, my goodness, this is not what we're doing. That's what you guys are going to have to do. You guys who are 20 years and younger, you're going to have to get this book, and you're going to have to start reading it, and you're going to have to ask yourself this question, God, what do you want me to do? And then let this book answer it. And that is the hope for our country, not anything else we can do. It's, it's you folks who are 20 and under to get this book and to start asking, God, what do you want me to do with this? And let's even dive even more personal. That's the hope for a, a, the church, right? The remnant within the church is God's word, God's law. And so in that vein, I wouldn't let faithfulness to God's covenant community be determined by a number from a certain generation. Like you said, use the word. And say, how does God want me to relate to his body, you know? Um, Travis, any comments on that question? Yeah, I was just going to maybe remind us, we live in a culture of convenience, right? We want it to be easy. Uh, we don't want to have to get dressed in the morning if we don't have to. We want everything to be on our iPad or our iPhone. We want everything to be super convenient and easy for us. Uh, it's the drive through window uh, mentality is, uh, please deliver it to us, right? Uber food and things like that. Like, I don't want to have to leave my house. And that's just the culture we live in. And everything's going towards convenience, easy of access. And so as people who are people of the word who want to obey and honor God, yeah, we've got, we've got to fight against culture when it's not helpful. Be grateful for the things that are helpful, the amazing access we have to brilliant authors and preachers and teachers. Be grateful for those things. But when culture's not helpful, we've got to be willing to, to fight against that and be able to make tough decisions because we know it's, it's for our good. Um, and so we've got to continue to wrestle with the technology that we're blessed with. Yeah, I think some of the themes in the word are like selflessness, sacrifice. And so in the culture, like you said, goes the opposite direction. You know, how do we fight against that and swim upstream? Chris, talk for a minute about the one habit, you mentioned this already about the word, but just expand a little more. The one habit that most affects someone's spiritual trajectory and growth. This is not just a, a put a finger in the air. This has actually been proven through research that the single habit that you can, that you could begin that will have the most impact on your spiritual life is to just read the scripture daily. Read the Bible every day. Yeah. Just it, it, you don't have to you don't have to pour through 25 chapters, but begin a habit of reading the scripture every day. We've got some plans out there on the table and we, we're starting out in 2019. We're challenging everyone. If you don't have a Bible reading plan to just read through the New Testament in 2019 and we've got some plans that will help you do that. But just begin the habit of spending time in the Word every day, and that has the single greatest impact upon your spiritual growth. I think this is really the point of the second umbrella sin is as they strayed from the Mosaic Law, God's Word given to Israel is how to relate to Him. As they strayed from that, they continued to digress further and further away from His goal, and they became more like the nations. And don't you see this in the church today? As we stray from His Word... We start looking, like you said, to the culture of convenience for our cues, and that's just a recipe for disaster. Um, before we mention this card that you got, Travis, talk a bit about cultural distinction. I know this is, a, again, kind of a, it can be hard to talk about, but maybe what's, the, what's 
one, if not the, the, the one area where we as a church, and I mean that Christendom-wide, where we sometimes just aren't really distinct like we're called to be. Yeah, um, this is a broad category, but I think it's self-control. I think it's willing mm. to say no to certain things. Uh, we want to be people of godliness, of holiness, and, and that's just not a, uh, a cultural norm right now. We've got to be people who have standards and convictions and people who make decisions before we're placed in difficult circumstances so we know the decision we're going to make. And I think we're people that cave very easily and people who um, give in to what the pressures around us, and whether it's at the public school you attend or the workplace, uh, whatever is the norm in that environment, we're usually people who just give in. And I think, mm. man, if I could, if we could, as a church, raise up a younger generation of people with self-control, people who love God and desire to obey him regardless of the culture they live in, and so when, if it means not being cool or not fitting in or losing out on friends, uh, man, what a, what a gift of character uh, we, we should impart to our younger, our generation below us, the, the kids and the middle schoolers and the children. If we could teach them to say no to sin, to fight sin, to understand that sin's a lie and to live for God is the greatest joy, man, what a, what a gift that would be. Yeah. In fact, take this card, would you? You got it as you came in this morning. Can anyone just make sure you have that to uh, access to it? You'll notice on there some things that Chris has referenced, Travis has referenced, I've referenced. These are just some of the, you may call them goals. We could call them church-wide initiatives. They're going to be talking about things like serving selflessly, growing personally, evangelizing courageously, giving consistently. All these are going to lean into habits that actually at times will seem countercultural. You know, don't invade my personal space. I don't feel safe right here. Don't talk to me. Uh, we've seen that on university campuses. Uh, giving of our financial resources. Uh, that takes sacrifice. Serving regularly. Seeing all of our ministries fully staffed. As Christian, I'm about reading the Bible on a regular basis. Just having a plan and that holds you accountable to doing that. These are some things that we're going to be not, uh, nudging you towards and prodding you towards throughout the year. There's some other things you'll see unfold, some of their goals, but I think these are the the, the things that we're going to be talking about publicly and encouraging you to continue to think about how can we make progress towards being God's people, worshiping Him alone, uh, and unafraid to be culturally distinct. You're with me? Now, while these guys are with me, let me just show you something. When you hear their talks and their commentaries, their application, and you see the text today in the historical timeline, you may think, wow, it was grim. But I want you to notice a glimmer of hope, and then we three want to share with you today's take-home truth just in a moment. But look at this glimmer of hope in 2 Chronicles, would you? 2 Chronicles chapter 36, this one glimmer of hope, it actually is the same way the book of Ezra begins. But look at this. Just when you thought it was over, it's actually not. Look what the Word of God records for us. Now, when the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, this is 2 Chronicles 36, 22. That the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Here's what it said. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah, 
Whoever is among you of all of his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Say the last four words with me. Let him go up. Hey, they're coming home. The 70 years is up and they're coming back. What does this say to us? God wasn't finished with his remnant. God didn't throw away his people. There were national consequences, surely. And some of those folks within that people weren't really born again and they were dispersed. But here God is keeping his word and saving the remnant. And so we three want to make sure you hear today's take-home truth. Here's what we're saying. Through the timeline, through the text, through these different truths that we've kind of observed, that even in discipline... God is always working to preserve his remnant of a consecrated people and fulfill his promise of a coming Savior. Can you say that together with us three? Let's say it together, ready? Even in discipline, God is always working to preserve his remnant of a consecrated people and fulfill his promise of a coming Savior. Travis, Chris, thank you so much. Let's just hold that screen right there because I want to show you where this picks up in a beautiful place as we close today. Because it's not enough to say, well, great, that's how Israel's history ends. Thanks for the 53 weeks of Old Testament history, all the gore and blood and guts. No, because at the end of Second Chronicles, we wait another 400 years and there is no prophet. They're called the silent years. They're, they're back. The temple's being rebuilt they're trying to establish worship. That's a far cry from their glory days. There's no prophet on the scene. God's voice is just silenced. But 400 years passes, and the next one is John the Baptist. And what is he saying? He's saying, make way for the final prophet. Make way for the ultimate king. In fact, look how Matthew 1 describes this. I love this portion of the genealogies. In fact, Matthew 1, beginning of verse 12, picks up right where we leave off in 2 Chronicles 36. And look where it all leads. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 12. And I've got a challenge here with some names, so work with me, okay? But it's important for us to read this. Here's 2 Chronicles 36 now continuing. After the deportation to Babylon, watch this. Jeconiah was the father of Sheatiel. Sheatiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Ibud. Ibud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Akim, Akim, the father of Eliud, Eliud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Mathan, Mathan, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. There's the word Messiah, and suddenly all of God's promises for all of these hundreds of years in the Old Testament find their personification and fulfillment in one person, Jesus Christ. Amen. So as you conclude this 53-week series, don't think this like, wow, man, that was a rough sketch of history. I'm glad it's over. It was a rough go, but all of it was being orchestrated and done by God to preserve his remnant and to fulfill his promise. And God used 
all kinds of people in all kinds of ways to lead every one of them to see Jesus Christ. And if we end this series and you don't see Jesus, we have missed the mark. If you remember 20-some-odd kings, but you don't remember Jesus, we've not taught this well. Six books, 53 weeks, is not designed so you would know names of kings and provinces and cities and history. It's designed so you would see that, wow, man's humanity is at best fraught with so many pitfalls and problems, but God's sovereignty leads me every time to the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. And he has done it historically. He is doing it spiritually. So let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the only one worthy of our attention. You see, these things did happen for our examples. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 10. But not that we would emulate them or necessarily avoid them. It's so that, that we would see how all this points to Christ and find all of our, as Travis said, satisfaction in Jesus Christ. Will you join me this morning in doing exactly that? Let's revel and just uh, wonder at the glory and beauty of the King of Kings. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.